in my life, there's always one core that is constant throughout all of those. Is it's a season of hardship. It's a season of suffering. So discontentness always comes in a hard season. It always comes in a difficult season. We have to recognize that. We have to be intellectual in this approach that when we're going through something hard, we have to know intellectually there's going to be discontent that's going to come. There's going to be, why are we doing this? We should go back or we should go forward. But typically, the trigger for a season of discontentment is a season of suffering, is a season of hardship. And this is exactly what we're getting into this morning. We're going to see that they're buying into the lies of Satan because this church is walking through a really difficult season. So, Here's my goal. This morning is going to be super short uh, because we have a really awesome ministry that we're going to partner with, and I want them to have ample opportunity to share what they're doing. So this is going to kind of be a sermonette uh, this morning, but don't be too excited. Sermonette for me is still 30 minutes, which is a normal sermon for everyone else. But uh, we're going to try that this morning as best I can. Uh, So let's look at Hebrews 12. We're just going to look at 18 through 24 with the lenses of how is discontentment how, how are them being unsatisfied because of the suffering and the persecution they're going through, feeding into, man, I wish we could go back to when things were easier. So with that framework, Hebrews 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So let's spend some time praying this morning over this text before we dive in. Uh, Father, would you speak to us this morning? And Father, would we read, study, understand why this letter was written, why this sermon was preached to the Hebrews? And Father, from that, would we understand what this means for us today? Spirit, would you do what only you can do, which is illuminating the sex to our hearts? And as we've walked into this room with baggage, with uh, heavy hearts for different seasons or different areas, Father, would all that be removed and let us focus only on you and your words for us? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, it's very important to start at the very, because there's, there's, there's two simultaneous stories happening here, but if you look back with me at verse 18, it it simply starts out, for you. For you. And we have to understand this because, again, this is a sermon. So what's happening here is we're reading the middle part, really, is kind of the end part of this sermon. So when this author, when this writer, when this preacher says, for you, he's drawing our attention back, right? Summarizing all of what he's been talking about for Hebrews 12, but also the greaterness of Hebrews as a whole book. And so we see Hebrews 12 over those last couple weeks, uh, this idea of perseverance, run the race, don't give up. And Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says it this way. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
So this whole theme is run, run, keep going, don't give up, uh, stay the course, run with endurance, persevere, you've got this. So with Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 set, we've seen that over the last two sermons. Run, run, don't give up, persevere, don't lose heart, don't slide back into who you used to be, but persevere in Christ. So this for you idea is summarizing that entire thing, but also summarizing the entire book that we've seen within the book of Hebrews, that we don't slide back, we persevere. Why? Because Jesus is greater. Because Jesus is better. Because Jesus is the one that holds us to the end. So that's the whole idea of this for you is bringing together. But but we have to see this is the most climatic point that the author has been building really for the last 11 chapters in this entire book. Al Mohler puts it this way. This paragraph is the crescendo of the book of Hebrews. It reminds us that we're not going to the old mountain again. We have come to the new and better mountain, the new covenant. So this, this chapter, this book, this paragraph, these verses that we're reading is the crescendo of the entirety of the book of Hebrews. So what are we going to see this morning for us? That we are the second part of this story, not the first part. That we don't need to slide back into the law, into uh, legalism, into sacrifices. We need to stay in the kingdom. We need to keep running and pursuing Jesus. And I want to tease that idea out a little bit. But let me address something real quick, just kind of a caveat as we get in. Because there's going to be moments as we're studying this text, and even for me as I was writing this sermon this week, uh, where we find this idea of perseverance somewhat strange, right? Like, why do we as Christians need to persevere? Why is this author, author so obsessed with this idea of perseverance for this group of people? And the reality is because it was life or death for them. Perseverance for us as Christians in America, where we live, is just kind of ridiculous. I mean, what do we have to persevere from? We're free to do whatever we want. We suffer no persecution, we suffer no condemnation. I've said this before a lot of times, being Christians makes our businesses even more successful makes our lives more successful. So when we hear perseverance, we have this Americanized idea of what the gospel is, that that follow Jesus and your life is going to be better, that everything is going to work out for you in the end. Just just follow Jesus because you don't want to go to a bad place, so come to a good place. This is the better option. So for us, when we hear sermons where we read the book of Hebrews about perseverance, in the back of our minds we're going, that's great, but not for us. Like, Like there's no thought of me not persevering. And, and here's where I just gently press in. If Christianity has not cost you anything, how deep is your faith? So perseverance is the same story for us as it is for them. But the question we have to wrestle with is why has Christianity not costed us anything? If it's not costed you a career change, if it's not costed you friends, if it's not costed you um, happiness in the world's sense, if it hasn't costed you something then we really need to slow down and examine, man, what, what does our faith look like? What is it actually doing? And, and here, I, I wanted to give some examples here of people within this congregation that I could brag on, that I can encourage and go, look, here's what this family did, here's what this individual did, where Christianity actually counted something. But, but my fear, and I'm not going to do this because it would come across legalistic, because this isn't a point, you must do this, you shall not do this, but it's what is God calling you as he's picked up, called you to pick up your cross and die daily? What is Christ calling you to give up? What sacrifices is Christ calling you? And, and it might not be the same for me as it is for you. I'm, I'm not saying that everyone in this room should pursue full-time ministry. You shouldn't. 
But that has costed our family something for us to pursue full-time ministry. I'm not, I'm not saying that everyone should sell everything and move to the mission field and give up everything, but I think some of you should. So, so I didn't want to give a bunch of lists because that would turn into legalistic, and well, if I'm going to be a good Christian, I've got to do this. No, what is God calling you to give up so that there are hard seasons where this letter is actually applicable to you, where perseverance is actually in the back of your mind? And if you never had that moment, I'd really consider sitting down and going, what has being a Christian cost me? What have I had to give up to follow Christ? Does that make sense? So with this idea of perseverance, for you, we, we go back to verse 18, where this is going to highlight the old covenant. For you have not come to what is, and this is a mountain, this is Mount Sinai. You have not come to a mountain that may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure in order that that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, again, this was written to Jewish Christians. So as this writer, this preacher is saying this, they know exactly what the context is. This was not foreign to them. But for us, just for clarity's sake, let's go back to Exodus 19. Um, because Exodus 19, a little bit of verse tw- or chapter 20, is the setting, is the context of what's happening here. So let's go back. I'm, I'm going to read a large section of this uh, just so we can get a full context. Uh, but what is happening here is this author is portraying Exodus 19 and 20. And this is when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses, where God's presence comes down on Mount Sinai, and we see just fear. Exodus 19, like I said, this is going to be a longer part, but just stay with me. We'll pick it up in verse 9. Exodus 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear it when I speak with you and also, may also believe in you forever. When Moses told the words of the people of the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now just real quick. Us, in our context, man, God's going to come down and dwell amongst. I mean, how many of us have prayed that before? God, I just want to see you. Just make your presence known. That's all that I need, right? Just make these lights flash on and off, and then I'll know you're real, right? We've all said these kind of prayers, but it's about to happen. And what we think would happen if God would just reveal himself to us, and what actually happens is night and day difference. Let's keep reading in verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether the beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds, sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain. So Moses is receiving all of this from God, goes down from the mountain And tells the people, be consecrated, and they wash their garments. Verse 15. And he said to them, people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. That's free. Don't go near a woman. On the morning of the third, just kidding. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Right? So their initial response wasn't, oh, that's cool. God's showing up. No, their initial response was trembling. 
Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in a thunder. Then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, flip over to Exodus 20. So Moses goes up, receives the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, we're going to read just 18 through 21. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And, so Mo- and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So here we see a clear display of the power and the holiness and the might of the gods of gods, right? Here we see God, his power, his glory, his holiness falling down on Mount Sinai. And the response of the people wasn't like, oh, that's cool. Y'all see the lights flicker? Oh, that's cool. I know God's real. No, the response was, don't even let God talk to us because we're, we're surely we're going to die. Moses, you just tell, him, tell us what we say. We're just going to stand in a hole and die. Like we're so terrified. We're trembling with fear. Moses, you, you tell us what he says because we, we can't handle it. We, that's, that's too holy for us. We can't even be in the same place. And the effects of the physical signs that God showed was to show that God is holy that he is perfect, and he is almost unapproachable. That the people within Sinai, the people of God, needed to see that God was so holy and perfect that you cannot approach him on your own terms. That you just can't flippantly come to the God of the universe and go, what up, G? You good? I'm good. Thanks for these doves falling out of the sky. This man is pretty good. Dove and quail are the same thing. I shoot both of them. Get over it, right? I'm, I'm good. What's up, G? We're good. That's not the approach that we come to from God. God was instilling a fear of himself to the people of God as he was giving them the law. And so in our family group, we just kept coming back to, like, God just seems unapproachable. That was the theme, that was the topic that kept coming up. God just seems unapproachable, that we cannot just go talk to him, that we cannot just go right up to him and share in life with him. We have to start to understand, and the next part is going to answer this question, but if perseverance is the goal here, don't quit, keep running, don't quit, keep running, this is what they wanted to fall back to. Like, this is what the people of God, the small church within Rome, wanted to go back to. They, they, they were tired of persevering to follow Christ. They wanted to go back to this. They wanted to go back to this understanding of the law. And so what the author is saying is you are on the wrong path. You are heading away from Sinai into Jerusalem. You have left your heritage in Abraham and Moses, for you have forsaken the nation that God has blessed you with. Why would you go back? Why would you go back, people of God? Why would you want to go back to that? And this is the great problem that they're talking about. This is where the perseverance is coming through, that, that if you don't persevere, this is where you're going to go back. It's that version of law. It's, but we have Jesus. And so that's where we pick up in verse 22. Because you can almost hear the perplexing tone of the preacher. What is, what is happening? I'm actually hearing what I think I'm hearing. 
verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who is enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So you see this comparison for verse 18, you have not come, verse 22, but here's what you've come to. You've not come to this. You've not come to God, his presence on Mount Sinai where everyone's fearing and trembling because death is impawned on them. But here's who you have come, to Christ, the great mediator, to God who is the judge. But because of what Christ has done, you're no longer afraid of God, the judge, At Zion, God embraces us with the grace and administers us a covenant where he does not merely write the law on tablets of stone, but he writes the law on our hearts. This is where this church is living, but they would prefer to go back to where they were. Why? Because of suffering, because of persecution, because of the hardships that they were facing. They wanted to go back to what they knew. So there's seven descriptions that we see. I'll go through these real quickly. Seven descriptions of this new covenant, this new, here's where we are, church, embrace this. And the first we see is the city of the living God, an earthly dwelling place of God for the future dwelling place. So now we are citizens, but, but this verb is used in the perfect tense. So yes, we live in the new city now, but we also are going to live in the new city then. So Christ has saved us, he's redeemed us, we're part of the city of God now, and we'll be part of the city of God for eternity. So it's the already but not yet idea that Christ has saved us, Christ has redeemed us. We're living with him in this new city, the city of the living God, now and forever. And then in no matter terms, we get to party with the angels, a festal gathering. This is a great national assembly is what this is talking about. This is just a knockout, drag out party. We get to party within the angels The angels are with us, we're with them, constant celebration, constant worship. And then we see the assembly, we see the church reigning triumphantly. We saw this in the Apostles' Creed, right? The communion of saints, the big C church that nothing can touch. Rome fell. Every major powerhouse among history has fallen, but what has persevered through it all? The church. The church has been triumphantly. Fellow believers, firstborn, which is all of us, all believers, we see that we get to come to God, the judge of all. And we don't have to come fearing that he's going to destroy us. We get to come to the judge of all as a son or as a daughter. We get to see Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The only reason that all this is possible The only reason that we don't live in the old covenant, that we live in the new covenant, is that God sent his only begotten son to pay the price for us, to pay the penalty of sin for us. This is what we're walking into, that his sprinkled blood, which is the seventh, offers us forgiveness. Jesus offers us what the law cannot, right? So when the law came down from Mount Sinai, here's the Ten Commandments, do this and you will live, but if you don't, you will die. Follow these commandments. So it was a generous thing that the God of the universe gave us his law law to follow, but the law can never fully save us from our sins. The law was empty when it came to that front, and only Christ can do that for us. What a beautiful expression of what we get through Christ. One commentator said, and this is conjecture for sure, but I really hope that this is true. 
This passage is, has a lyrical feel and a feel of an early confession regarding the church. Perhaps a little Hebrew church sang this in the months that followed as it attempted to run the race amidst the ensuing Nero persecution. So as martyrdom was becoming a real reality, perhaps, perhaps the church in Rome was singing this to remind themselves that God is good and he's worth it. That through Christ he is worth it. They were singing this song, humming this song, reciting this song together for the hopes of perseverance. So the author is just imploring them, don't, don't go back. Don't go back to God on Mount Sinai, but stay rooted in Christ. Stay rooted in Christ. Here's the only way that you can persevere, is that now we can have the approachableness of God. We can come to God as sons and daughters only because of what Christ has accomplished. Why would we want to go back, church? Why would you go back to when God was unapproachable? But through Christ, he is approachable. Stay here. Don't go back into the Jewish traditions. Don't go back into the law. Follow Christ. Persevere with Christ. And the answer is simple. Why they wanted to go back is there's no persecution for them. If they would renounce Christianity, denounce Christianity, fall back into their Jewish heritage. Rome didn't really like the Jews, but they were going to leave them alone. They hated Christ. So if they would just denounce that they were Christ followers, go back into the Jewish traditions, there's no martyrdom for them. There's no suffering for them. There's no persecution for them. But this writer is imploring them, but don't you know what you're going back to? Like that is worse than suffering. That is worse than martyrdom because there's no hope in that. There's only hope that's found in Jesus Christ. So over the next few minutes, I just want to make a few simple observations for us to wrestle with. One point of application, and then we'll wrap it up. Sound okay? Here, so here's, here's the first point of observation. And here's a fear in reading this passage. I don't want us to do this. That God has not changed from the old covenant to the new covenant. Right? So I don't want us to read this passage and go, man, God is just a jerk in the Old Testament. But Jesus is so good. Let's just get rid of the Old Testament God and only worship the New Testament God. Let's just follow Jesus. If it's just red letters, let's do that. But the Old Testament, that's just, that's hogwash. Who would ever want that kind of God? But we want Jesus because Jesus fed people and Jesus healed people. We, we don't want the Old Testament God. No, those are the same, right? We cannot understand the beautiness of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins until we understand the holiness and righteousness that we see clearly displayed of God in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? So if we didn't have the law, we would not know that we're sinners. If we didn't see the holiness of God displayed on Mount Sinai, then we would have no need to pursue forgiveness for our sins. But it's only because we have that framework that Christ has become so sweet. It's only because we understand God is holy, then we are sinful, then what are we going to do then? How then do we respond to our sin? Well, it's Christ. It's Christ alone. So Exodus 15, in this whole passage, says it this way. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So when they're starting to understand who this God is, right out the gate they're saying, your right hand destroys everything. You don't even have to try. Your right hand destroys it all. And we fast forward all the way to the end, Revelation 4, 9 through 11. John, as he's having images of God, here's what he says. And whenever the living creature give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated at the throne, who lives forever and ever. 
The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their crowns before them saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect. And we have to understand the God of the Old Testament to understand the Christ of the New Testament. Does that make sense? That we cannot divorce these two. We cannot separate these two. And and here's why I think that we have such a low view of Jesus and his sin. We have such a high view of ourselves and our lack of sin is because we have forgotten the totality of the Old Testament. We spend almost no time there. That's why I love that we're doing the uh, Bible reading plan because it's forced you to spend time in the Old Testament to understand the character and the nature of God. We cannot divorce these two. And until we see God of the Old Testament rightly, we'll never see Jesus of the New Testament rightly or our own hearts rightly. And here's what Kent Hughes has to say about this point. God does not call us to a mountain we're not allowed to touch. He calls us to a Savior The same Savior who told Thomas to place his fingers in the holes of his hands and to place his hand on the wound in his side. In Christ, the old law has been annulled and a new one has been ratified. The new law does not condemn or judge. Rather, by Christ, the better blood, it guarantees for us an internal inheritance and secures final forgiveness of sins. His blood brings us to Zion into the presence of the living God. These things are better indeed. So this is what we worship. This is where we get to live. So that's one observation. We we can't separate these two. Here's another observation, and I brought this up earlier. The slide into the old covenant is not our temptation of perseverance, right? So if I were writing a letter to the church today about perseverance, I would not include this section. I would not include, hey, persevere, don't fall back into the law. Don't fall back into legalism. Don't fall back into sacrificial systems. That's not how I would write a letter to you guys today about perseverance. So we read this and we go, well, like, then I'm good, right? Like, that, I'm, I'm not falling into that, so look at me. Look how great I am. But we have to understand what our temptation falling back to is. And even though it might not be the law, we have that temptation. And Ephesians 2 tells us exactly what it is. Before Christ, before the Lord saved us, Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power, the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So when we talk to us, Contextually, us. We take the principle that, that the writer is speaking of. Persevere. Don't lose heart. Don't slide back into what you're comfortable with. Our comfortableness is not sliding back into the law. Our comfortableness is falling, sliding back into what the world deems is successful, what the world deems is good, what the world deems is righteous, what the world deems is good for us. That's our temptation, is to slide back into the worldly definitions of success following the course of this world? Does our life look different than those around us? Do we make decisions the same way? Do we think about political issues the same way? Do we do what others do on the weekends? I mean, you don't. I'm preaching to the choir because y'all are here. 
But this is a beautiful fall weekend. So if we're following the course of the world, this is the weekend to get a couple girls and go up into the mountains and hang out for the weekend. That's a little jab. That's what my wife's doing, right? Don't tell her I said that. Just tell her I looked good. No, she deserved that. But right, like we have to view this through the lenses of this passage, following the passions of the flesh. What brings you satisfaction? Don't worry about what this book says. What brings your flesh satisfaction? The desires of the body, the desires of the mind. You deserve to have really nice things. You, you deserve to be happy. Whatever it takes for you to be happy, go for it. And if church makes you happy, great, go for it. If it works for you, cool. If it doesn't, cool. Study your Bible if it's convenient for you. Make decisions based on what the Scripture says. As long as it leads to your ultimate happiness, go for it. So our temptation is not to slide into the law. Our temptation is to slide into worldliness, to make decisions based on what the world tells us. So it might be a little bit more subtle in our time, but it's still just as sinful nonetheless as what the author is employing them not to do. And number three, the last observation to make is to persevere to means to focus on the internal, not the physical. What we cannot touch and what we cannot see. So we see this back in Hebrews 12. We start off in 18, for you have not come to what may be touched. That we have not come to this mountain that we can see, that we can feel, that we can understand, that we can watch this happen. We've not come to what is physical, but verse 22 says, we've come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we've not come to what is physical, but we've come to what is eternal. We've not come to what is physical, we've come to what is eternal. So how do we persevere in light of this reality? That what God is calling us to do as believers might not lead to any physical success. We might not ever see it, touch it, hear it, feel it, any of that. But it is an eternality that we're focusing on. The kingdom of God is not a place anymore. It's a people. It's us. It's moving and going about as the church. And it's the spirit residing in us. This is the way 2 Corinthians puts it. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, or excuse me, as not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're falling away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That is the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, is we have to get our eyes up over the things that we can see, into the things that we cannot see, into the heavenlies, into God's plan for all of us. If we want to persevere in our faith, we cannot focus on the present realities. We have to focus on the future kingdoms. So, so as we close, I just want to end with this simple question. Does our church, the family of God, does our church seem more like we serve an unapproachable God that we fear or a saving God that welcomes us into the family. So as we close, does our church, the family of God, seem more like we serve an unapproachable God that we fear, or a saving God that welcomes us into the family? 
So we see this second part where the author is imploring them. This is where you live. Don't fall back into the old ways. Stay in this. Stay in the city of God. Stay with the angels. Stay with the fellow believers. Stay with the God that loves you. Stay with the church that is triumphant. And stay with Jesus Christ, the mediator, the author and perfecter of your faith. Stay in this there's a literal party of angels. I mean, I'm not trying to get all mystical, and, and we can debate this later, but when we sing, when we worship, Scripture tells us there's angels worshiping among us, that they can't not worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So when we're worshiping, there's a party going on that more than we can see. It is the eternal things, it is the unseen things. That is where we get to live. Freedom. Christ has paid the way, the celebration that comes with that. Or do our worship services look like a blazing fire in darkness and gloom? Do we paint a picture of God being this unapproachable God that really doesn't like you, that wants nothing to do with you, that wants to keep you at arm's length? And the only way that the world would see that is the way that we treat them. Are we inviting them into a joyful celebration? Or are we keeping the world at an arm's length? What image of God are we portraying to the watching world around us? Sam Storms puts it this way. So what are we calling and inviting people when we ask them to come to the church? Is it a place of dread where God is remote and distant and unapproachable? Or are we calling people to join the experience of unparalleled joy? I love that. The experience of unparalleled joy. We are not to be unduly or rowdy, but who we who are Christians, all the people on the earth have reason to celebrate and sing with joy and exultation. I've mentioned this before, and this is my own shortcoming that I just lament over. That when we went through COVID, I mean, I know COVID's still around, but we went through the shutdown, we went through all of that season. I lament the fact that I look just like the world through that season that my fear was the same as the world's, that my posture was the same as the world, that there was no joy coming out of my life. I just looked like the world. But Sam Storms is saying, because we live in this new covenant, because we live in the season of life that we live with Christ as the mediator, we should have unparalleled joy in the world to just see that around us. But the hope is, because of all of this, let us persevere. Let us keep running the race. Let us not fall back into what our, we're comfortable with, into what the world says brings happiness, satisfaction, and joy. But let us run the race with endurance. Let us persevere. And this is, I'll end with this. This is Jesus' words. Jesus says in Luke nine sixty two, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So church, let us not look back. God has saved us. He has redeemed us. Let us not look back to what the world defines as success, to our former passions, our former flesh, our former ignorance, but let us run the race with endurance, focusing on Christ, Christ crucified, the mediator on our behalf so that we can approach God fully and unashamed, knowing that we can. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we have Christ, you, that you are approachable. The fact that I can stand here and preach your gospel, that I can pray to you right now, that all of us can pray to you is only a testament of Christ and him crucified. It's only a testament that we literally live in the perfect time. 
God, that you have come, you have sent Christ to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us. And we should have an unparalleled joy. That perseverance for us should be easy because we have the Spirit inside of us crying out, Abba, Father, praying for us when we can't pray for ourselves. We have that within us. But Father, just like this small little house church in Rome, and just like the hymn says it, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. They were always tempted to fall back. We're always tempted to go back to what we know, to what was comfortable, to what the world deems is successful, to what the world deems is joyful. That's where we want to go back. But it's in the triggers of suffering and sorrow and persecution and hardships. That's when we want to go back because we're reaching for control in any way we can find it. And so, Father, this morning, would you convict our hearts if that's the season we're in? If we're walking through a difficult season of suffering, of doubting, and we're falling back into who we used to be before you saved us, that we're thinking and make decisions like we used to before you redeemed us, that we're defining success and happiness like we used to before you rescued us. Father, would you convict us of that? Would you show us the shortcomings of that? Would you show us that only through Christ we have an unparalleled joy, that only through the new covenant we can approach God as Father? And would we as the church persevere? We would not lose heart, but we would keep going. We would set our hands to the plow and run the race and plow the field, do the work that you've given us to do, not out of our own strength or our own power, but only by the blood of your Son. So Spirit, in these next few moments, would you just speak? Would you convict our hearts? Would you lead us to repentance? Where we are losing heart, where we're going back to what is comfortable and what is known, would have seen what can be touched. And Father, would you lead us back to pursuing you to the unknown, to what can't be touched, but what is eternal, to the new city, to the party with angels, to the triumphant church, to a God that we can approach and we don't have to fear. God, would you lead us back into those days and protect us from sliding back to what we know, which is our sin. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. It's your name we pray. Amen.